Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Thanks for your support on Patreon, Brennan Steele. Brennan was nominated personally by Cardinal Richelieu himself to help mediate on France's behalf between Poland and Sweden. A successful decision because this led to the truce of Altmark in 1629. Well done, Brennan. This, of course, is all a lie, but if you would like me to lie about you, you know where to go. Head on over to Patreon. More on that later, but for now, enjoy this episode, episode 49 of the Thirty Years' War. Hello and welcome, history friends, patrons all, to the Thirty Years' War. I hope you're all doing well in 2022. Hope you're not having too many parties and that you're being sensible. Make sure it's a work event beforehand. I hope you had a great holiday period and that you're looking forward to what 2022 is going to bring. Because I can tell you firsthand, as a primary source in these matters, when diplomacy fails is going to go from strength to strength this year. And a big reason for that is because we're going to be publishing an awful lot of stuff. So keep an eye out for, in particular, the three Matchlock books that will be completing the first phase of this really exciting historical fiction series. More on that later on. But also keep an eye out for a reworked version of my 30 Years War book. Instead of it being one massive slab of 1200 pages, I'm going to separate it into three different parts, with the first part being called... War in the Age of Matchlock, the second part, and the third part then being a essentially a divided version of the Thirty Years' War book. So yeah, it's going to be really exciting to release these, having bought the rights back from the publisher. I cannot wait to see what we do with them. And yes, of course, I know what you're thinking right now, an audiobook for each of these three will, of course, be on the way. So it's a busy time, and a busy time in PhD land as well. But really, this is the home stretch in a way. Only 18 months of this PhD remains, unless something happens and I need to have another semester or another year or there's another outbreak or who knows at this stage. Maybe I shouldn't be making any plans in 2022, but I do know that things are going well with the PhD. And if all things continue to go well, then in the next few months, we should have that Patreon series ready for the $5 patrons and up. I really do appreciate that you guys have pretty much all stuck around since Poland is not yet lost, ran out of scripts, and I didn't really have time to research any more stuff. So thanks so much for that. Your support really is so appreciated. 
And I heard that you enjoyed the Trent Affair as well. I'm glad you did, because that was kind of like a foretaste of what's to come for Britain Goes to War, that Fiverr series that we're going to be doing. All that housekeeping out of the way, I hope you are comfortable, and that you're ready now for episode 49. This is honestly one of my favourite parts of the Thirty Years' War. I just think that Cardinal Richelieu's act of helping to broker peace between Sweden and Poland, so that Sweden could intervene in the Thirty Years' War, and then Sweden's efforts to make sure that Russia attacks Poland in the east, I think that's a part of the Thirty Years' War that's very rarely, if ever, talked about. I mean, how often is the Thirty Years' War even talked about? But it's one of my favourite stories because it shows that the Thirty Years' War was much more international than is often expected. We often just think of it as a, a German or a Central European conflict. But even if different actors weren't directly involved, they did feel the ripples of this war. And also you see a lot of realpolitik, courtesy of Cardinal Richelieu, yet another reason why I find him so incredibly fascinating. But let's get back to our regularly scheduled programming. And last time, yes, we looked at the interconnected nature of European diplomacy in the late 1620s, which extended as far east as Russia and which nobody could afford to ignore. Even in lands far removed from the ravages of the Thirty Years' War, one either stood in the Habsburg or the anti-Habsburg camp, and they had accumulated allies accordingly. This, again, fits with our For God or the Devil idea. That was the title given to our Thirty Years' War book. And the reason for that is because it's pretty much impossible by this point to just say that you're going to be neutral and not really pick a side. We've seen this on a minor scale with the German states, and now we're seeing it on a larger scale with full-blown countries. So, in this episode, we continue this narrative. More specifically, we examine two pieces of diplomatic activity. The first concerning French efforts to mediate a Swedish-Polish peace, and the second concerning Swedish efforts to solicit a Russian declaration of war against Poland to secure Sweden's flank. As I said, both of these instances speak to the increasingly international flavour of the war, as no power was able to remain totally aloof from what was going on in the Holy Roman Empire. It's also worth underlining the fact that from this point, all the disparate threads of our story have converged. It's almost like they did it on purpose. It's just so satisfying. The struggle between the different potentates in the empire, the war between the Spanish and Dutch, the Habsburg-Bourbon rivalry, and now the legacy of the wars in Scandinavia and Northeast Europe, all these separate dramas had been played out, and they were now superimposed upon the conflict which Emperor Ferdinand and his allies were fighting. Let's see how it all went down then in this very juicy episode, as I take you to late 1629. The task was a formidable one, but if it worked out to his benefit, then all the investment would have been well worth it. Cardinal Richelieu had long been cognizant of Sweden's potential, and he had long appreciated the position of the Swedish king. The story of Sweden in the 1620s was one of continuous war with Poland, a dynastic war and a war apparently without end. In his task to assemble an anti-Hasburg coalition of Avengers, Cardinal Richelieu had been interrupted by troubling events at home and had been unable to maintain a sufficient support system. Thus, Denmark was destined to fall, as was that ill-fated Hague Alliance of 1625, which the Danes had committed themselves to. Nothing, indeed, could be done for Denmark, at least not for the moment. With the Peace of Lübeck in spring 1629, Emperor Ferdinand had effectively removed all opposition to his regime within Germany. 
However, at the same time, events of the last few years had demonstrated that, while his power was considerable and his allies relentless, the facade of Habsburg invincibility was precisely that, a facade. Look at the city of Stralsund. That city had been strong enough to resist the unstoppable Habsburg tide, and if Richelieu took some solace from this Habsburg setback, he certainly would not have failed to notice the presence of Swedish reinforcements among the soldiers which had been sent to that city's garrison. Gustavus Adolphus, the warrior king of Sweden who ascended the throne during a multi-front war in 1611, was a great deal more careful and cautious than we might have expected. Having seen his Danish neighbour go up in flames, he knew better than to throw his kingdom into war with the empire before the conflict with Poland had been resolved. Thus, Gustavus had sent reinforcements, but the Stralsund incident had not been allowed to serve as the catalyst for open war between the emperor and the Swedish king, even though, in some cases, it's considered as the quote-unquote beginning of that war. Sympathising with the plight of the German Protestants, a feeling which only escalated after the Edict of Restitution was unleashed, Gustavus was mindful of the bitter realities of his realm's power. While Swedish gains in the Baltic had been considerable and her triumphs had wrested several lucrative ports from the Poles, she was nonetheless low on natural resources, she lacked the means to exploit what few resources she did have, and she was virtually exhausted from nearly three decades of constant war with her larger Polish neighbour. It was an illness which suggested an obvious cure. Some foreign potentate would have to intervene and bridge the gap between Sweden and Poland. Foreign interest in the conflict had only increased as the Danish promise had failed, and the Habsburgs surged ahead in the race. In 1627 and 1628, both the Dutch and Brandenburg had worked to broker a peace. It was in the interest of both of these states to do so, but just as he neglected to become involved in the war in Germany in 1625, Gustavus was reluctant to do so at that stage too. He evidently believed that more could be gained from continuing the war with his Catholic Polish cousin. And indeed, more was gained. The Polish-Lithuanian Commonwealth was showing some severe signs of strain, and its divided, disconnected magnates had never truly trusted King Sigismund in the first place, which made their military organisation very difficult in the vast country. Furthermore, as the innovative Swedish king marched, the Polish king was beset with urgent requests from his nobles to make peace and institute some military reforms. The once stunning successes of the Polish cavalry were blunted considerably by Gustavus's effective new tactics and use of combined arms. King Sigismund III failed to listen, and his shortcomings compelled Albrecht of Wallenstein to send help from neighbouring Pomerania. It had been in the interest of both men to do so, but the intervention of troops loyal to the Holy Roman Emperor could only bring about the result which Wallenstein feared. By sticking their nose in Sweden's business, the Swedish king now had a legitimate grievance which only war could satisfy. Military shortcomings notwithstanding, Gustavus engaged in some risky campaigning in 1629 during his efforts to seize Danzig, the premier port of the Baltic. As we saw before, these efforts were repulsed, and with their imperial reinforcements, the Poles succeeded in driving the King of Sweden back. By now, though, the Polish nobility had endured all they could of their king's war. Gustavus was also worn out from the conflict, and his greatest concern was to forge some kind of lasting arrangement which would leave him in control of his conquests. 
The tolls from the Baltic ports of Prussia and Pomerania provided Gustavus with a new source of revenue, but it was still far short of what he would need to make war against the emperor on the scale that he was envisioning. Gustavus met with the Danish king in spring 1629, and had seen firsthand what happened to those that were abandoned by their allies. He did not wish to suffer the same fate. It was therefore fortunate for Gustavus that matters in 1629 were a chasm apart from those of 1625, when the Hague Alliance had intervened in Germany with so much misplaced optimism. Most notable in the international situation was the change in France. Consumed by Huguenot revolts and the intrigues of scheming nobles, foremost among them the king's brother and mother, Cardinal Richelieu was not in a position to wield power all that confidently in 1625. By 1629, though, not only had his position significantly improved with the defeat of the Huguenots, but the French were actually at war with the Habsburgs in Italy. Because of this situation, military allies were not merely potential cogs in the anti-Habsburg machine, they were instrumental for taking the burden off of France in Italy and diverting Habsburg attentions elsewhere. With the war in Germany at an end, because Denmark had peaced out, it was vital for French interests that the Spanish and Austrian Habsburgs were unable to focus the full extent of their powers in the Mantuan War of North Italy. The most obvious solution was to simply resurrect the war in Germany, and with Sweden the only power in a position to intervene, it was critical for the sake of French security that the Swedish entry into Germany be facilitated. The war in Italy added a new urgency to French considerations, especially with the arrival of imperial reinforcements by Wallenstein later in the year. As Richelieu recalled in his memoirs, Gustavus Adolphus, a new rising son, as he put it, had the potential to change everything. And according to Richelieu, King Louis XIII of France had taken note of this young prince with a view to trying to make him of use in order to divert, in due course of time, the emperor's main force and to prevent the emperor from unjustly waging war in Italy and France and to make him give up through the terror and damage he would suffer, his design aimed at opposing public freedom. Several princes of the empire, wrongly despoiled of their states by the imperial forces, look towards the king of Sweden in their wretchedness, as navigators look towards the north. But he was busy with the war against Poland, and although he lacked neither courage nor ambition, he needed to be freed from that enemy before making for himself another, such as the House of Austria was. This was the crux of the issue, Richelieu would have to succeed where others had failed, and broker a peace between the mortal enemies of the North. Fortunately for Richelieu, he was able to benefit from the exhaustion on both sides which had set in during 1629, and it was with the goal of capitalising on this war weariness in mind that Richelieu determined to send an expert on Northern affairs, Hercule Gerard, the Baron Charnace, to meet with the relevant monarchs and reach some kind of arrangement. Charnace was advised, before meeting with the Swedish king, to visit Sigismund III, the king of Poland. By so doing, he could leverage some interesting news which Richelieu had learned against Sigismund, that news being that the Russians were planning to launch a war against the Polish king. Gustavus Adolphus and his chancellor, Axel Oxenstierna, had always believed that King Sigismund of Poland would simply treat any arranged truce as an opportunity to prepare for a new war with Sweden later on. And once Sweden intervened in the German lands, Poland would then avenge itself upon the distracted Swedes. 
Charnache had two cards up his sleeve to combat this justifiable fear. The first was that the French had a resident diplomat in Poland who had worked with Charnache to guarantee that the Polish king would keep his word, or, as it was put to King Sigismund, His Majesty, the King of France, is guided chiefly by the interests of the King of Poland, for if the Swedish king allies with the Muscovite, which is his intention, so His Majesty has learned, such an alliance can bring notable harm to the Polish king. This expression of concern was in many respects a backhanded warning that if Poland did break the truce and make war on Sweden, the Poles would find themselves locked in a two-front war. The second tactic which the French could use tied in with the first. In all levels of diplomacy, knowledge was power, and the French had learned that the Russians intended to break the truce which they had signed with Poland a decade before. Thus, through the application of stern warnings and an understanding of the complexities of northeastern diplomacy, Baron Charnache believed he would be better equipped to facilitate the truce that France needed. Since 1615, when Muscovy had sent an embassy to Paris, the French had needed to formulate some kind of diplomatic response. Although Russia was on the fringes of Europe, it was not so negligible that it could be ignored especially considering the interdependent nature of Sweden, Poland, Russia and their neighbouring states. Political pressure on Poland could also be increased if France established closer relations with Russia, a point expanded upon by the instructions given to French ambassadors in 1626, which read, Besides the advantages that France can draw from these relations with Muscovy through trade, the king will become even more important among the northern rulers, and especially in the eyes of the Polish king, who, having no enemy more powerful than Muscovy, will henceforth hold back from promoting the interests of the House of Austria, since His Majesty the King of France can also harm him and render services to the Grand Duke of Moscow. There was, so it seemed, no limits to the vision of Richelieu's far-reaching diplomacy, and as we can see, this diplomacy revolved around the Habsburgs. Richelieu had learned of the Russian intention to break their truce with Poland from a convoluted chain of information, which actually originated with the Turkish ambassador in Moscow, who then updated his colleagues in Constantinople. Having made war against the Poles themselves in 1620-21, it was in the Ottomans' interests to leverage the threat which Russia could pose to Poland, and the French ambassador in Constantinople, learning from the excited Turkish chatter in 1628 of Russia's intentions, immediately wrote to Paris, informing Richelieu of the opportunity. Having been made aware of the use which Russia could now serve for French interests, Richelieu instructed Charnache to travel to meet with the Polish king and make these revelations plain to him. As Charnache met with Sigismund in mid-July 1629, he was informed that his colleague, de Hayes de Cormenzen, had stopped off in Denmark on his way to Russia. Evidently, Richelieu was not content with barely veiled threats or the accumulation of knowledge. He wanted to facilitate a war between Russia and Poland and believed that sending a diplomatic mission to Moscow was the best way to make this happen. Interestingly, Sigismund learned of the simultaneous French approach to Poland and Russia and received Charnache with some hostility because of this. Fortunately, Charnache had been well prepared by Richelieu in advance should word leak out. De Hayes's trip to Moscow was presented to King Sigismund merely as an economic mission to regulate trade, and indeed, De Hayes was provided with instructions to do just that. 
Of course, he had also been instructed to compel the Russians to make war on Poland, but we'll keep that on the down low for now. Sigismund was deeply perturbed by the news which Czarnace had brought about regarding the Russian intentions to make war on Poland soon. It might have been troubling for the Poles, but it can't have been too surprising, having broken off diplomatic relations since 1622 with their Russian neighbour, there was no way for Polish agents to learn of Russian policy. Any Polish official that ventured into Muscovy was arrested and treated as an enemy combatant, while Russian officials were treated similarly. It is significant that upon receiving the troubling news, Sigismund sought to reverse the downturn in Russo-Polish relations by sending a great embassy to Moscow. Reaching the disputed border area, this embassy was rudely turned back by Russian soldiers. This rebuff had an immediate effect on King Sigismund. Charnace had actually left to meet with the Swedish king by the first week of August, having got nowhere with Sigismund in July. He was then sent a letter urging him to return to meet with the Polish king, which Charnace heeded, and he was back in the presence of Sigismund once again by the 6th of August. Now, after having used what little bargaining power he possessed, Sigismund was ready to trust the French mediations and make a hasty peace with Sweden. So long as he remained at war with Sweden, the threat of a two-front war would haunt his country's security. Sigismund could not know when the Russian axe would fall, and he showed himself extremely impatient to resolve his differences with Gustavus Adolphus before it did. Thus, his Swedish cousin was permitted to keep all of his Baltic conquests just as he had hoped, and Sigismund barely put up a fight for those lands and cities which he had lost. Little did he know that the Swedish foothold on the... Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with and Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that and Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Baltic Shores was a permanent arrangement. 
We're going to continue with our very juicy narrative of 1629 Far Northern Diplomacy, but before we do, I just want to make you aware of something very exciting. Matchlock and the Embassy is the first instalment of our historical fiction series set during the Thirty Years' War. I'm really excited about it, particularly because in the next few weeks, a new, updated, second edition of the first book will be out, because yes, I got it professionally edited and I listened to the sometimes hard to swallow but often easy to justify criticism. I'm very happy with how the first book turned out in its second edition, and I'm especially happy because the second instalment of our Matchlock series will be out by March. I've already got the first draft ready, and now it has to face the formidable task of passing muster before my team of editors, which in other words means Anna and my dad. Once it does that, then that version of the manuscript will go to the professional editors and then it will actually be available to the public. Look for me announcing this later on in the year because those of you on Patreon will be able to get this as part of your perks. You'll get the ebook and eventually those of the $12 level will get the audiobook. The audiobooks for Matchlock will probably take a little bit longer to produce, simply because I am not very comfortable with doing fiction myself in audiobook form, and I know my limits, so I'm going to get a professional to do it instead, and I have to find that person and pay that person, etc, etc. Really boring story, but basically that's what's going on right now. In more, perhaps, relevant news to you, if you're not that interested in Matchlock and historical fiction, you should know that our Thirty Years' War book is being repurposed and re-released in the next few months as well. It'll be separated into three parts. These three parts are essentially torn from the large first book, but each of those three parts have been completely reworked and redone and essentially made better so that they read like more comprehensive individual stories, especially with Warfare in the Age of Matchlock as a volume examining, well, Matchlock muskets and how important they were at the time and how they were used and all the reforms that were brought in and the drill and the fire by rank and artillery and all these kinds of changes and military revolution, etc., etc. It's a very fascinating time and there's some really good research in there that I think will make a difference to how people see this period of the 16th and 17th century. So I'll let you know when that comes out, but it will be shortly after the second Matchlock book. In short, I'm doing a lot of legwork and background work at the moment with the intention that in a few months' time we'll have a steady release schedule of content that you can dip into if you are so inclined. Very exciting times indeed. And of course, all of these pieces of content, all these books and audiobooks and what have you, contribute towards the PhD which I am still in the midst of. I only have 18 months of it left, so that's great. It will be nice not to have to pay fees anymore. But I have to say a particular thank you. That felt weird. I have to say a particular thanks to those PhD pals who supported at the $12 level for so long and who continue to support this show. If you would like to access, seriously, a lot of content, about 40 hours of podcast content that you won't get anywhere else, in addition to loads of other perks, then patreon.com forward slash when the plumacy fails is where you gotta go for that. Otherwise, guys, thanks again and enjoy the rest of the show. It was typical of Richelieu's diplomatic approach that while Baron Czarnacze was among the Polish king trying to mediate a peace, de Hayes was in Moscow attempting to persuade the Tsar that France was doing no such thing. 
the French believed that since a Swedish-Polish peace harmed Russia, any news of France's role in this truce should be hidden from view. The end of the Swedish-Polish war could be presented simply as a mutual beneficial arrangement which happened to have come to pass, rather than the fruits of a French diplomatic scheme, which it actually was. On the contrary, de Hayes assured the Tsar, France was aiding Sweden in its Polish war, and her agents were not involved in any mediation. De Hayes claimed that Charnace was merely a commercial agent, sent to Poland by France to wrest economic concessions at a time of Polish weakness. Much like Charnace's similar claim about de Hayes to Sigismund, this answer had been prepared in advance by Richelieu and proved really effective. The two French agents played both sides, and their exploits also convinced Gustavus Adolphus, who agreed to sign the Truce of Altmark on the 16th of September, 1629, with a little bit of help from our patron, Brennan Steele. Their work was apparently done. 1629 had been a profoundly busy year for Richelieu, who had made time for these schemes just at the moment when the war in Mantua was intensifying. Indeed, de Hayes' letters and seals were provided by Richelieu in the Savoyard city of Sousa before that diplomat set off for his Russian adventure in late April 1629. Only a month later, Richelieu had concluded the war with the Huguenots. The Habsburg peace with Denmark was learned of shortly thereafter, as were the full implications of the Edict of Restitution. Richelieu's failure to block the more unfavourable developments only added to his sense of urgency. He needed to achieve some diplomatic success so that Habsburg gains could be balanced, and he found this opportunity in the tangled circumstances which the hostile northeastern powers provided. Although Richelieu's role in the Truce of Altmark and the Russian preparations for war were considerable, it would be too simplistic to explain these developments by French intervention alone. It's actually worth appreciating the Russian position in these developments, since it was news of the Russian intention to attack Poland before the expiration of their truce, which provided Richelieu with so many opportunities to exploit. It would be incorrect to view the Russians as a pawn in the French game, notwithstanding the huge boon to French fortunes which the Russian policy decision provided. Moscow had its own appreciation of European relations, aided by an intelligence and information centre in Novgorod, where press reports from the major capitals were compiled. The embassy's department within Moscow contained interpreters of the major languages, and these individuals all worked hard and in consultation with one another. To best combat the machinations of their mortal enemy, the Poles, it was vital that Moscow understood who Poland's friends were. Thus it was well known in Russia that the Habsburgs supported the Poles and that they supplied them with men and materials, not to mention a marriage, as signs of their friendship. Foreign ambassadors to Moscow echoed this view of Russia, and it was known that King Sigismund drew much power from Emperor Ferdinand's friendship. If, however, the Emperor could no longer support the Polish king, then Sigismund would be vulnerable. This logic was expounded by Gustavus Adolphus in the past, when he claimed that a war against the Holy Roman Emperor would serve to fatally undermine the position of the King of Poland, but it was also referenced by the Turks. Once Emperor Ferdinand became occupied by the war in Germany, foreign observers, and particularly Poland's enemies, noted the new vulnerability of the Polish king. As the Turkish ambassador in Moscow noted, 
It is known to you, great sovereign, that in Germany there is a great conflict between the emperor and the Lutherans, so that he is now unable to help the Poles, and on his part, the sultan has ordered the rulers of Transylvania, Wallachia and Moldavia to attack the emperor, so that he will go on being unable to bring aid to the Polish king. Any plans for a sweeping anti-Polish or anti-Hausberg coalition did not materialise though, even while the Turks did wage war against Poland in 1620-21, and the Prince of Transylvania, as we have seen, provided no end of headaches for Vienna throughout the 1620s. Still, it was within Russia's interests to attack Poland, while Sigismund was distracted by his war with his Swedish cousin. Interestingly, while the French had made great use of the threat of the Russian declaration of war on Poland, it would be up to Sweden to persuade the Russians to make war on the Poles by itself. Gustavus would use the argument that Sweden was fighting the same enemy he had been fighting from the beginning, the nefarious Habsburg influence. But he would have to work hard nonetheless to persuade the Tsar to go it alone against the Poles. While Richelieu's plan to release Sweden from the Polish war was successful, the second part of his plan met with more resistance. On the 21st of October 1629, Baron Czarnace arrived in Uppsala for a face-to-face meeting with the King of Sweden. His journey had taken him across the frozen battlefields of northeastern Europe and back again, and with probably very sore feet or saddle sores, he now was finally in the presence of the figure whom Richelieu believed was the key to relieving the burden of war on France and turning this war against the Habsburgs. It was pivotal that Gustavus and Charnace see eye to eye and that they hammer out some kind of arrangement which would facilitate Swedish intervention in Germany. Charnace was treated well in the Swedish capital and his reputation for making a good deal preceded him thanks to his recent work on the Truce of Altmark. Having sorted through the anticipated questions of precedence and etiquette, Baron Charnace attempted to settle down to business, but Gustavus put him off. It wasn't until November of that year that Charnace revealed to Gustavus the extent of his powers. King Louis XIII had authorised him to strike a deal with Sweden's conquering hero to the tune of 600,000 livres annually, which would certainly solve Gustavus' immediate shortcomings in cash flow. However, the return which Charnace expected from this subsidy was too high a price for the Swedish king to pay. Charnace wanted Sweden to expel Spanish troops from the Rhine and raise their fortresses. He wanted Sweden to combat the imperial forces under Wallenstein, but to leave intact the soldiers commanded by Count Tilly of the Catholic League, and to refrain from harming Bavaria. Furthermore, under Richelieu's advice, Gustavus was told that the German Protestants would be more amenable to accepting Swedish aid if the Swedish king presented himself as the guarantor of German Protestant freedoms as well as the independence of the individual princes and cities. Gustavus should therefore pose as the saviour of the Germans, and the answer to the emperor's absolutist, militant Catholic tendencies, which they so feared. Gustavus was reported to have laughed at these suggestions, before immediately laying into them in turn. He had no intention of playing the role of a French pawn. He would not declare against Spain when Swedish-Spanish trade was at an all-time high. He would not guarantee Bavaria when this could damage his relations with the pro-Palatine English. He even questioned the logic in the French attempts to have it both ways, to pose both as the champion of the anti-Habsburg cause and at the same time to present France as the friend to German Catholics like Bavaria, 
who would never choose a French king over a German emperor. These rebuffs came as something of a surprise to Baron Charnace. While he would try again, for the moment Charnace took solace from the fact that by sheer necessity, Sweden was destined to be a nominal ally of France. 1630 looked to be the deciding era in Germany as well as North Italy, and Charnace could not have known that Gustavus would wait until 1631 before formalising his relations with France. In the meantime, having got the peace with Poland that he desired, Gustavus focused on preparing the way for a landing in Germany. Stralsund was reinforced in March 1630, and extensive feelers were sent out to those figures that truly matter now, the German princes. While he worked to cushion his German landing, Gustavus also built upon his Russian insurance policy by closing ranks with Moscow against Poland. Before he moved with disarming confidence into the next phase of the war, Gustavus wanted to ensure that he had at least either German allies or a Russo-Polish war. In the end, he got both. As the German princes met at Regensburg, the defenders of Mantua prepared for another siege, and the Dutch continued their conquest of their Spanish neighbour, the King of Sweden had never been stronger, but he was far from finished yet. In the next episode, we'll examine how Gustavus Adolphus helped facilitate the Russo-Polish War, and the lengths he had to go to in order to bring that critically important conflict about. We'll also dwell for some time on the nature of diplomacy and interdependence in that frozen part of the world, and we'll examine Gustavus's motives for involving himself in the German meat grinder, which to him appeared to offer endless possibilities for glory and triumph. I hope you'll join me for that, history friends, but until next time, my name is Zach, and this has been episode 49 of the 30 Years' War. Thanks for listening, Happy New Year, and welcome to 2022, and I'll be seeing you all soon. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. 